Let's pray together just now. Grace sufficient, grace for me, grace to those who believe. We will stand on every promise of your word. Lord, you've been good to us so many times uh, as you've come, as you've taken your written word and by your spirit you've spoken it afresh to us. Lord, come and do that this evening. Amen. As I'm standing here this evening, I'm kind of pinching myself and can hardly believe it uh, that we've made it. We've made it to the end of Romans. These long series that we we take on from time to time, I always think we should have some sort of a party at the end just to, to celebrate that we've come through it in one piece. This is the 24th time uh, over the, the evenings of this past church year that we've gathered together to look at this book. So uh, I'm excited uh, to have finally reached the end. You're probably less excited as you paid attention to the chapter that I just read. I wonder what you made of it um, as I read it for you a moment ago. Did that long list of names feel like a bit of an anticlimax to all the, the deep theology and the practical teaching that's gone before? Maybe you find yourself just a bit underwhelmed, thinking this isn't going to be uh, the, the greatest sermon. No, you wouldn't be the first. If you read a lot of the commentators and if you hear some of the preaching series, uh, a lot of people don't really pay an awful lot of attention uh, to Romans chapter 16. It seems to me that what we make of Romans 16 probably depends on whether we think it has much to do with what's gone before or whether we think it's just an unrelated add-on. If it's unrelated if this is material that's been badly appended at the end of Paul's great letter, then then we're not going to be very excited about it. But what if Romans 16 is wonderfully related? What if we discover that it gives flesh and blood to, to a lot that we've thought about in these last previous 15 chapters? Wouldn't that make for a wonderful end to the book and a wonderful climax a fitting climax to all that's gone before. Well, let's, let's have a look and let's see. If you look at the NIV text, if you're using the, the Bible there in the pew or your own NIV, you'll notice they analyze the whole chapter under only one heading, personal greetings. That's a, a wee bit too broad brush. It misses a, a, some other stuff that's going on in the chapter. So, I see here five different sections. Paul begins by commending Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. Then he greets a bunch of his friends in verses 3 to 16. Then he warns the believers in verses 17 to 20. Fourthly, he passes on some of the greetings of his other friends to those in Rome, uh, verses 21 to 24. And then he finishes verses 25 to 27 with a doxology of praise to God. We're going to look at these five sections, but I'll tell you now, we're not looking at them all uh, with an even uh, hand. Some of them we'll deal with very much more quickly than others. So first of all, verses one and two, a commendation. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centrea, 
I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been a great help to many people, including me. Phoebe's probably the messenger, the one carrying the letter from Corinth to Rome. And Paul asks the guys in Rome, when she arrives with you with this letter, receive her warmly. Give her all the help that she needs. Look out for her and do her good. But look at the lengths that he goes to to give dignity to this woman. He calls her a sister. He says that she's a servant of the church. And he recognizes how she's been a help to lots of other people and he himself. Phoebe's probably quite a wealthy woman, some sort of a patron to the the early church. And she's used her wealth to help the church and the apostle Paul. I have to say I love these these opening verses. The kind of things that they they show us about Paul. It's like Paul's celebrating the postwoman here. She's just delivering the letter. That's all she's doing at this point. But he he takes time to to celebrate her and value her. And I think it's just a great thing to remember to do in our relationships with each other. Let's learn and always continue to commend each other. What do I mean by that? Well, I think it, it means to speak warmly to each other. Let's do that. But let's speak warmly about each other too. It's okay to talk about someone behind their back. We have this thing that you're not allowed to talk about people behind their back. You are. You're allowed to tell each other how great uh, people are, how much they've encouraged you or inspired you or helped you. This commending each other, a, a wonderful gift to the church. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. After he's commended Phoebe, Paul sends greetings to 26 individuals. 24 names he gives, and there are two other people uh, referred to. And in most cases, he says something good about them, something that he appreciates about them. And when you pay attention to the the long list of names, you get a bit of an idea of what this crowd in Rome is like, what this church in Rome is like. We see two things both at the same time. We see that there's a lot of diversity in this church, but also that they share a great deal of unity. The diversity first. It's diverse, this church in Rome, in its race, in social status, and also in gender. As for race, we know that there are both Jews and Gentiles in this church. We know that because we've read the book of Romans, but it's confirmed in this list of names here. So Priscilla and Aquila... They're Jews. Paul talks in verses 7 to 11, or 7 and 11, about people who were his relatives. I don't think he means brothers or sisters or even cousins. He means Jews, people who are part of the, the whole family of God's people. So it's clear that there are Jews on this list, but it's equally clear when you look at the kind of names on the list that there are plenty of Gentiles. So this church is ethnically diverse. It's hard to be absolutely definitive about the social status of each of the individuals mentioned here, but there are patterns. Uh, Let me flag them up for you quickly. 
Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus, and Julia, those are all common names for slaves. At least some of the people on the list we know are free persons, and then some, at least, are very distinguished people. So, for example, the commentators think that it's quite likely that Aristobulus, mentioned in verse 10, is the grandson of Herod the Great. He's a friend of the emperor Claudius. Narcissus, mentioned in verse 11, is a well-known friend of Claudius too. So do you see what's going on here? Paul's writing to, to slaves, to free persons, but he's also writing to, to some pretty influential guys in the imperial house. So this Roman church is diverse in terms of social status. The church Paul's writing to is diverse also in terms of gender. Nine out of 26 people named are women. Paul thinks highly of them all. He singles four of them out as having worked hard. Uh, By the way, in my experience, healthy churches always have women in them who work hard. This is no unique thing in Rome. Notice Priscilla the wife of Aquila, here and on three other occasions in the New Testament, she's named before her husband. Is it because she was the first to come to faith? Is it because she had a higher social standing? Is it because, as in some marriages, she simply was the dominant personality? We don't know. All we know is that when you talked about Priscilla and Aquila, you always talked about her first. And Paul doesn't seem fit to change that. She has some sort of intrinsic leadership and he doesn't do anything to undermine it. Paul recognizes the value of women and their ministry in this diverse church in Rome. So we have this diversity of race, of social class and of gender. But alongside this diversity, there's a unity that allows these folks to to be together. Paul's language makes it clear what the basis for their unity is. Four times he describes them as being in Christ. Verses 3, 7, 9, and 10. Five times he describes them as being in the Lord. Verses 8, 11, twice in 12, and then 13. So they're in Christ and in the Lord. He uses this language freely and repeatedly. And twice he uses the family language of brother and sister. Verse 1, sister. Verse 14, brother. And notice too that he doesn't hold back from talking about people that he loves, that are dear to him. These are Paul's brothers and sisters in Christ. They are one in Christ and in the Lord. There's a real sense of unity in this church in Rome, but I'm I'm trying to picture what it actually looked like. What, What did the unity of this church in Rome look like? Well, we know that they met in houses or in household churches. So six times Paul refers to households. And I want you to think with me for a moment, if there's a a series of household churches in a city, how's the membership of these going to be configured? Is there going to be one household for men and one for women? 
Is there going to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church? Do the slaves go to this one and the free men to that one and the, the influential to that one? This is how human nature works. We like to be with people who are like us. Is that the way it was in the church of Rome? I don't think so. Nothing that Paul has written in the last chapters would make any sense if that were the case. Chapters 14 and 15, Paul's been working out the implications of the gospel. And and he's been talking to them about sharing life together, accepting one another, glorifying God with one heart and one mouth. If they worshipped in different, ethnically divided, socially divided communities, then they would not be singing and praising the Lord with one voice. They would not be accepting one another. That would contradict unity in a diverse church. I thought this would be a good point to pause for a moment and just check that that we're grasping this truth for ourselves. Do we understand the, the gospel call to unity and diversity? in the church. Our church ought to be a place where men and women, wealthy and less wealthy, where young and old, locals and immigrants, all can be together and experience unity in their diversity as they gather around the cross of Jesus Christ. If all of that sounds obvious, and you're saying, yeah, of course, then let me tell you that that is not the way a lot of modern church growth happens. The church growth experts tell us that you shouldn't expect to be able to have diversity in the church. That's too much for people. They couldn't possibly compromise all their dearest desires to be together with people who are different than them. They tell us that if you want to build a church, you need to target a particular type of person and build a church to please them. So one pastor of an American megachurch says, I encourage you to create a composite profile of the typical unchurched person your church wants to reach. Combining the characteristics of residents in your area into a single mythical person will make it easier for the members of your church to understand who your target is. So treat people as if they're all the same and then draw them in to something that's exactly what they want. You'll maybe know which pastor I'm talking about and which church I'm talking about when I tell you the name of the mythical person that this church is trying to target. It's Saddleback Sam. It's all about building a church where we're all the same or very much alike. So we're supposed to be now thinking of how we can draw in Ballyhackamore Bill or Betty. Who is this person, this mythical, homogenous person who lives on our doorstep? How can we give them exactly what they want? No compromises required. Friends, homogenous church where we're all the same or all expected to be the same is defective church. 
It relegates church to something that it's not. It relegates church to a club where we're simply together with people who are exactly the same of us. Friends, we're not together here this evening primarily because we're all somehow the same. We're together because we have responded to the love of Jesus Christ. His salvation is the thing that we have in common, the center around which we gather, and our commitment to him is what allows us to be together despite being very different. We've been thinking for a few moments about the unity and diversity in the Church of Rome. I want to pick up on another aspect of the Church in Rome that's illustrated so clearly for us here, and that's something we've already mentioned. It was a house church. The Church in Rome was a network of small communities meeting in particular homes and sharing life together. Now, I don't want to suggest that this is the only model for church. It it isn't. Clearly it isn't. But I'm convinced that one of the strengths of the early church, one of the reasons that it grew so rapidly, is because the gospel was not simply being taught to a crowd, but was being lived out by small groups of people. You didn't come to big church and hear a sermon and then retreat until next week. You gathered with a small bunch of people around the word of God. You considered together what God was saying through his word. You you prayed with each other and for each other that, that the likeness of Christ might be formed in you and you lived it out. Friends, can I urge you, whoever you are, if you're not part of some small fellowship, some place much, much smaller than this, a place where you, you meet at close quarters with brothers and sisters in Christ, could I encourage you to seek that out and to join a home group, a discipleship group, whatever it is that would be right for you. We're starting a new discipleship group here in the church in September. If you wish to be a part of that, you'd be very welcome. But friends, that was one of the qualities and the strengths of the early church, their intimate community. Lots of you will know, uh, if you're around Kirkpatrick, that I've currently got an extra responsibility, and that is to be the convener of the vacancy at Knock Presbyterian Church. We're moving into a phase there in that uh, process where we're in an active candidate search. So we're beginning to think who the next minister of that church might be. I have to say, as I think about who the next minister might be, my mind often comes back to the minister who's just left. And many of you will know Alistair Dunlop, the previous minister of Knock. He was elected the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland in 2001. I wonder if you remember what his theme for that year as moderator was. I'll not ask for a show of hands or a shouting out of answers. Alistair's theme was simply, people matter to God. I think Romans 16 is in the Bible because it, it shows just that reality. Here at the end of Paul's letter, we meet a list of people, flesh and blood, 
Some of whom we know a little about, others we know nothing much about. It doesn't really matter. But this list changes what this book is. It reminds us again, and just in case we've drifted, that Romans isn't a theological textbook. It's a letter from a pastor to small groups of people trying to live out their faith in the the capital of the Roman Empire. People mattered to Paul. And we ought not to be surprised by that because Paul is a follower of Jesus Christ. He's learned from the Savior. Have you ever noticed how, how people mattered so much to Jesus, individual people? Just think about Jesus' ministry. He was willing to preach to the 5,000 and the 4,000. We do see him do that occasionally. But where do you read most about Jesus and how he spends his time? It's in the smaller, intimate settings. He gives most of his time to his disciples, to the 12. And think of how he deals with those single ones and twos that he meets along the way the woman with the flow of blood who touches him in the busy crowd blind Bartimaeus who shouts out from the roadside and is told to shut up because the saviour has more busy more to do with his time than a, a blind beggar the children whom the disciples tried to chase away but Jesus welcomed onto his knee Jesus was no mega church leader strategizing for how he could draw the biggest possible crowd. He was a shepherd, willing to lay down his life for the the one lost sheep. You see, people matter to God. And we shouldn't be surprised that at the end of Romans, Paul shows that they mattered to him too. We've seen in these first 16 verses that Paul's keen to command and then to greet his fellow Christians in Rome. At the same time, he wants to keep on teaching them. I don't think you could stop Paul teaching until you took the pulse out of his body. He's a, he's a teacher. He would always want to, to keep you in the gospel. Look at the warning in verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and who put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned, keep away from them. We've already talked about the unity and the diversity of the church. Because these wee gospel communities matter so much to Paul, he he warns them against those who divide them or trip them up on the road to gospel obedience. You know, you might think, goodness, that's a bit heavy-handed to finish a letter with. Those greetings are lovely, but folks, a warning is a demonstration of love. It's the people you love that you want to protect. It's the people you love that you warn. Paul loves these guys and he has their best interests at heart. He says, look out for people who will distract you from what you've learned. Give them a wide berth. The church is supposed to be a, a warm and hospitable and an open community, but it's not supposed to be naive or gullible. And Paul stresses that. He warns in verse 18, such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Whatever they're preaching, they're not pointing you to Jesus. Verse 19, he encourages these guys who've been obedient, and he says he wants them to be wise about what's good 
and innocent about what's evil. In this short warning, he reminds the believers in Rome about the importance of sticking with the biblical faith they've been taught, about the centrality of Jesus and the importance of morality. And John Stott suggests that this passage, therefore, gives us three questions that we can use to test any truth that we come across. Does it agree with Scripture? Does it glorify the Lord Jesus? Does it promote goodness? Feel free to write those down. Carve them into the pew in front of you. And if you ever catch me not preaching in that way, stand up and stop me. This is what biblical godly teaching does. In verses 3 to 16, Paul's greeted 26 individuals in Rome. Now in verses 21 to 24, he passes on greetings from eight of his friends in Corinth. We're not going to say anything much about this part of the letter. Just to note that it's there. In Romans, his theological masterpiece, Paul wastes time to, t- to pass on the greetings from eight of his friends to the church in Rome. The guys in Corinth, they're asking for you. Timothy and Lucius, Jason and Sosipater, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus and Quartus. Why would Paul do that? Why would he waste his time? Because people matter. Because people matter to God and they matter to him. And Paul's last word in the whole letter, it's not a not a profound teaching. It's not a cheery greeting. It's not a pressing command. It's more like a prayer. It's a prayer of praise to the God he's been talking about right throughout the letter. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. In his closing prayer, Paul draws back three of the major themes of Romans and brings them together one last time. He reminds us firstly that the gospel is about Jesus. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Paul praises God for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's the core of this message. Paul's been very honest in this letter about the universality of sin. He's told us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's told us about the consequences of our sin, that the wages of sin is death, but he's preached the gospel. He's told us that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As Paul closes his great letter, he can't help himself but praise God for one last time for the good news of Jesus. As he praises God, secondly, he thanks him for making this mystery known. The gospel, Paul says, is a revelation of the mystery hidden for ages long past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. Can you remember back to those dark, dark days of chapters 1 to 3? I do. I remember preaching them. They were grim. For three chapters at the start of the book, Paul describes human depravity. He talks about God's wrath against humankind. He makes sure that we understand that we're all implicated. 
whether we're Jews who have God's law or Gentiles who don't. There is no one righteous, he says, not one. But then, chapter 3, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We're lost until he reveals it. Paul's reminding us that this gospel of Jesus Christ is God's thing. Until he gives it to us, until he reveals it, we're lost. This is God's gospel. So the gospel is the good news of Jesus. It's God's gospel a revelation of his free grace. And thirdly, in Paul's doxology, finally for this evening and in this whole series, this gospel is given so that all nations might believe and obey him. The gospel is not just for Jews, as though God was limiting his grace to his wee favorites. The gospel is not just for Gentiles, as though God had forgotten his chosen people. The gospel is for all. All who believe. All who come to the cross of Jesus Christ. As we studied Romans together, I hope you've been reminded of some of the glory of the gospel. I hope you've glimpsed it in all the confusion and the chaos of my preaching. I hope you've grown in your wonder of what God has done for you and your confidence in his work. And my prayer is that I and you and and all people close to this church in Kirkpatrick Memorial might be able to join with the Apostle Paul and say, verse, chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, we thank you that as we come to the end of of Paul's great letter, that for all that we didn't quite grasp and all that we didn't understand... We see you at the center. We see your loving initiative, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that you've reached out to us and offered us salvation by your grace. We see that that is for all people. Lord, we thank you that we can sit here this evening and we can know that every one of us is a welcome recipient of your grace. We thank you that we know that this is true for the whole world. There's no person that we will ever meet that we need to apologize to and say the gospel's not for you. Lord, we thank you that your grace is for all who will only come and believe in Jesus. Lord, make us ever deeper rooted in these gospel truths. Make us ever stronger 
in our desire to teach and to share this with others and to, to live for your glory that others may see and come to know Jesus too. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.